0: Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Jean MacArthur, wife of General Douglas MacArthur, is often referred to by many of her husband's biographers as an unusual woman. Prior to meeting her future husband, she had dozens of suitors and, due to a large inheritance, was financially independent. Friends with the Lindberghs and a bevy of other celebrities, she was never at a loss for invitations or excitement. Unlike the first Mrs. Douglas MacArthur, Jean loved army life and enthusiastically fulfilled the responsibilities of a general's wife. She always called him General in public, and he courteously referred to her as Ma'am, and sometimes just Jean. She seemed to have been born for the role. So well did their marriage complement the motto, duty, honor, country. Today Jean is largely in the shadow of her husband. During her life, she certainly wished to remain in the background, but by all accounts, she was a vital member of his inner circle. Because she was such an important factor in MacArthur's life, her story will be divided into two episodes. Part one will focus on her life up to the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, and part two will focus on her experiences during World War II, the occupation of Japan, the Korean War, the death of her husband, and her final years. Both episodes are available on the Memorial's website, www.mcarthurmemorial.org, and on iTunes. Jean Marie Faircloth was born on December twenty eighth, 1898, in Nashville, Tennessee, to Sally and Edward Faircloth. Her parents were rather bohemian. Her mother was an aspiring actress from a good family, and her father was often referred to as imprudent by those who knew him. The marriage proved rocky, and in 1906, when Jean was eight, her parents divorced. Her mother took Jean and her two brothers, Cameron and Frederick, and went back to her hometown of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Jean thrived in Murfreesboro. The family lived with her widowed grandfather, Captain Richard Beard, a Confederate veteran of the Civil War, and a member of the party that shot and killed Union General James McPherson. Captain Beard infused Jean with a love of uniforms, of military valor, and with a deep sense of duty, all without stripping her of the charm and girlish vivaciousness that people tended to associate with her for the rest of her life. She grew up completely immersed in stories of the exploits of her relatives in the American Revolution, the Civil War, and the Spanish-American War. American military history and service was not an abstract concept for her. It was her history. In Murfreesboro, Jean attended Sewell College, a women's academy catering to girls from kindergarten age to what is now high school. Her mother eventually remarried, and soon Jean also had two half-siblings, Donna Angeline and Harvard. In 1917, the war year as she called it, Jean graduated from Sewell. She was considered the flag-wavingest girl in town, and as she transformed into a local beauty, the commonly held wisdom was that no young man without a uniform had any hope of courting her. Encouraged by her father to attend Ward Belmont in Nashville, Jean duly enrolled in the prestigious finishing school. She enjoyed her time at Ward Belmont, but spent her weekends returning to Murfreesboro via train. As a result, she never truly settled in, and left the school after only one year. Soon, however, as she later described it, she had her first real adventure. She was invited to spend time with an aunt in Louisville, Kentucky. Her aunt's son was a cadet at the Kentucky Military Institute, and Jean was soon regarded as the sweetheart of KMI. When the cadets went to Florida for winter training, Jean and her aunt followed, and did so two years in a row. One year when she didn't go, she received word from the instructors that a train carrying the cadets back to Kentucky was going to pass through Murfreesboro. Jean and her mother went down to the station to meet the train. She later remembered it as a wonderful time in her life. A train full of cadets happy to see her, all jockeying to talk with her, and everybody excitedly talking all at once. These adventures continued. At some point in early 1926, Jean was heading to Hubbard, Texas with her new sister-in-law, the wife of her brother Cameron, when Captain and Mrs. Godbold, once neighbors of her aunt in Louisville, heard of her plans to visit Texas and invited her to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. With the help of her aunt, Jean convinced her mother to let her go. She visited the Godbolts on a Texas cavalry post and had a marvelous time. She was the only young woman on the post and found herself surrounded by admirers. She visited the Rio Grande, went horseback riding every day, and at night found herself the number one dinner and dance partner. Her trip was meant to be two weeks in length, but she made so many new friends and her company was in such great demand that two weeks turned into six months. When Captain and Mrs. Godbold were transferred to Fort Stotzenberg on the outskirts of Manila, they encouraged Jean to visit them in the Philippines. Always ready for adventure, she visited the couple in 1926. This was the beginning of her interest in the Philippines and in traveling throughout Asia. In 1929, her father died. Although she had never been close to him as a young girl, the two had grown closer after her high school graduation. In that time, he had nurtured her love of travel by taking her on trips and cruises around the world. On his death, she found that he had left her a fortune of $200,000. Adjusted for inflation, this inheritance is roughly equivalent to $3.4 million in 2015. Under no pressure to marry or support herself, Jean used this wealth to assist family members and friends. One young woman she gave money to was Mary Ellen Vaughn, the publisher of the Murfreesboro Union, a major African American publication in the region. Even at this time, many noted that Jean seemed colorblind when it came to race, a factor that would be very important to her future husband, Douglas MacArthur. Apart from gifts to family and friends, Jean also used the money to finance continued travel. In April 1934, her mother died. Her younger half-brother, Harvard, was a law student at Washington and Lee in Virginia, and Jean worried that without their mother, he would get sidetracked and potentially ruin his academic career. She offered to take him on a cruise around the world over the summer break, and he enthusiastically agreed after securing her permission to bring a classmate. Leaving Hoboken, New York, they journeyed southward on the President Pierce, a passenger liner that was part of the Dollar Line. Once through the Panama Canal, they picked up the President Hoover in Los Angeles and made their way to Hong Kong and Manila. After some time in Manila, they boarded the smaller President Garfield and spent six weeks exploring Singapore and India. Then passing through the Suez Canal, they spent time in Alexandria, hired a car to take them through the night to Cairo, and then stayed in the famous Shepherd's Hotel. They rode camels under the pyramids and visited the recently discovered tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamen. Returning to Alexandria, they began the cruise home, pausing briefly in Genoa, Naples, and Marseille, before passing through the Straits of Gibraltar on their way back across the Atlantic. Back by September 1934, Jean returned to Murfreesboro. Restless, she was encouraged by her aunt to go back to Asia and continue her traveling. In 1935, Jean took this advice and again boarded the President Hoover. The Hoover was a luxury passenger liner, nicer than many of the finest hotels at the time. It boasted telephones and air conditioning in every room. It had also been built in Newport News, Virginia, miles from the birthplace of another passenger, Mary Hardy MacArthur. Mary Hardy MacArthur was traveling aboard the Hoover with her son, Douglas MacArthur, and her widowed daughter-in-law, Mary MacArthur. They were en route to her son's new post in the Philippines. Having just retired from the United States Army after serving an extended tenure as Army Chief of Staff, her son, Douglas MacArthur, was heading to Manila to serve as military advisor to the Philippine government. Although known for being vivacious and to delight in society, Mary Hardy MacArthur was in poor health and spent the entire voyage in her cabin. Her son spent most of his time with her, but one fateful evening he was introduced to Jean at a cocktail party hosted by the captain of the ship in honor of Boston Mayor James Curley. The party was small and Jean later remembered being introduced to a man in a tuxedo, General Douglas MacArthur. As she had spent so much time traveling with military friends, Jean was quite familiar with the name. The two chatted briefly before MacArthur left the party early, as was his habit. The next day, the boat stopped in Honolulu. Jean disembarked to sightsee, and when she arrived back on board that evening, she recalled that she had some lovely flowers from General MacArthur in her stateroom. Soon they were seeing more of each other. Although MacArthur himself rarely dined or attended social functions in the evening, choosing instead to attend to his mother, it was clear he enjoyed Jean's company during the times they did meet. Jean became recognized as a member of the MacArthur Traveling Party, a group that also included MacArthur's aide, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower found Jean an excellent companion and dancer, and along with the other members of MacArthur's staff, he helped to squire Jean around the ship. As the voyage continued, Jean started getting up early every morning to meet the general for breakfast. Those that knew her teased her about this new habit of rising early, but still it continued. Jean's destination was Shanghai, and as they neared China, MacArthur's sister-in-law encouraged her to come to Manila for the inauguration of Philippine President Manuel Quezon. There were so many dignitaries departing from Shanghai to reach the inauguration, however, that Jean's cabin had already been sold to another passenger for the Shanghai-Manila leg of the trip. With a little help from well-connected friends at the captain's table, Jean managed to secure another cabin and continue on to Manila. This inauguration in Manila was going to be the social event of the year, and soon Jean had an invitation to attend the actual ceremony. She was an instant sensation in the capital. She went to dances, explored Filipino culture, and attended receptions at the presidential palace. Observers began to remark that General MacArthur seemed to actually be enjoying the social events that included Jean. Weeks after the inauguration of President Quezon, however, MacArthur's mother died. Her condition had steadily declined during the voyage on the Hoover, and even more so once she got to Manila. Medicine was flown from California for her via the China Clipper, but to no avail. She was mourned in Manila as the Commonwealth's first soldier. MacArthur was devastated by the loss of his mother. She was the last surviving, immediate member of his family. Eisenhower and others around him noted that the death of his mother had an enormous impact on him. Despite this deep sadness, Jean remained a fixture in his life. She had even moved into her own suite in the Manila Hotel and was regarded as one of a score of permanent residents. On arrival in Manila, she had drawn a swarm of suitors. Gradually, however, the other bow all faded away. She was now seeing General MacArthur six days a week. She continued to attend cocktail parties and other events, but now, as if on cue, Around 8.45 p.m., MacArthur would put down the gimlet that he always ordered but never drank, appear by her side, and ask, Ready, Jean?" With that, they would depart, enter his waiting car, and head towards one of three movie theaters in Manila. Six nights a week, this was their routine. They went so often that Manila's ideal, lyric, and metropolitan theaters started reserving a choice set of seats for them each night. While other women might have found this a strange date, night after night, Jean showed no signs of being bored with it. For the rest of his life, MacArthur always found movies the best way to relax. Jean seemed to understand this, and their standard movie date became a big part of her time in Manila. She took it so seriously that once she even left the cocktail party she was hosting, when the guests did not leave promptly at 8.30 p.m., Momentarily flustered and not wanting to cancel her date or keep MacArthur's car waiting, she merely walked out of her own party and rushed down to his car after Sid Huff, one of the general's aides who was at her party, reassured her that leaving your own party was an old Manila custom. Despite Jean's vivaciousness and social nature, she was vague and private about her relationship with MacArthur. Few of her friends in Manila could get much information out of her. When they pointedly asked her if she needed to return to the United States before her return trip ticket expired, Jean innocently explained that she could stay several more months because she had extended her ticket. She never volunteered any other information, but later extended this ticket two more times. Having arrived in late 1935, she would stay until 1937. In nineteen thirty seven MacArthur left the Philippines with President Manuel Quezon bound for the United States and a meeting with President Roosevelt Jean remained in Manila but two days later surprised all of her friends when she packed her bags and boarded the Pan American Airways china clipper in Cavite She had a terrible cold and was probably not up to the adventure of flying across the Pacific, but she gamely endured the long voyage to Guam, Wake Island, Midway, and finally Honolulu. As one of the first female passengers to use the new air service, Jean was asked by the captain towards the end of the flight if she had enjoyed the trip. She replied that her favorite part of the trip would be when the plane landed in Hawaii. Pan American Airways chose not to use her comments as part of their new marketing campaign for women. After a few days rest in Hawaii, Jean boarded the SS Lurline, the passenger liner that General MacArthur and President Kazon had transferred to that very morning. Jean later commented that she tried to slink aboard, afraid that people would think she had chased the general and his party across the Pacific. Given what transpired later, it is far more likely that the whole thing had been planned from the start. MacArthur and Kazon met her when she came aboard, and she and MacArthur enjoyed another journey across the Pacific together. Once in the United States, however, they parted ways, and Jean traveled to her home in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Little by little, she slyly put together a trousseau and shipped some of her furniture and other possessions to Manila. In April, she received a telephone call from New York City. That night, she packed her bags and spoke to her half-sister and her aunt, informing them that she was going to New York City to marry the General Douglas MacArthur. Her aunt told her that people in America were going to be terribly surprised by this. Smiling Jean responded, "'The people in Manila won't be.'" Although she couldn't have known it as she was leaving, she would not be returning to Murfreesboro for 15 years, And when she did, there would be over 200 reporters and cameramen there to document her every move. On April 13th at 9 a.m. in the morning, Jean Faircloth and General Douglas MacArthur arrived at the chapel of the Municipal Building in New York City. She wore a brown dress and coat, and he wore a brown suit. The deputy clerk on duty officiated their wedding, and as the general's aide, Sid Huff, later wrote, the whole event was the least spectacular of any important event in the entire career of the Hero of the Pacific. He might also have included Jean's rather adventurous life as well. If the ceremony was underwhelming, however, the feelings between the two were certainly genuine. Confronted by reporters after the ceremony, MacArthur bragged, this is going to last a long time. When the couple returned to Manila, they hosted a reception for their friends. President Kazan gave them the government-owned Manila Hotel penthouse to live in, and they soon slipped into their old routine of cocktail parties and movies. They also spent a great deal of time reading. MacArthur had a 7,000-volume library, and soon Jean was also sharing in his habit of quiet nights of reading. Military history had always fascinated her, and as she read, she became more and more convinced that her husband was the greatest man in the world. People also began to notice that she was echoing his language, using phrases like duty, honor, and country. It was a happy time, and soon they were preparing for their first child. Jean, in particular, was quite anxious to have a son who could carry on the military tradition of both families. To her great joy, on February twenty-first, 1938, They welcomed a son, Arthur MacArthur. Both were ecstatic with the new addition to their family. Young Arthur's first gift was a biography of Robert E. Lee, and President Kazon and his wife stood as godparents at his christening. As Jean later remembered, the next couple of years were the last golden years in Manila. They lived a gentle life, but that was all about to change. As the next years went by, and war seemed to become an ever-greater possibility, Many people in the Philippines were comforted by the quiet domesticity of the MacArthur family. Most believed that as long as Jean was in Manila with her son, war was a distant danger, for the general surely would not allow his family to be exposed to any true danger. Unfortunately, MacArthur had little control over future events. Shortly after 3 a.m. in Manila on December 8, 1941, reports of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor began coming in. By 3.30, news reports confirming the attack were heard over the radio. MacArthur's chief of staff was woken with the news, and he immediately telephoned the general. In his penthouse, the general picked up the phone. He was stunned. He had envisioned a Japanese attack, but never like this, never striking and succeeding at Pearl Harbor. Jean brought him his Bible, and he spent a few minutes reading it before heading to his office. Nine hours after the initial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Jean and three-year-old Arthur could see black smoke rising far in the distance in the direction of Clark Airfield. The war had now come to the Philippines as well. Although most headlines in America would focus on Pearl Harbor, this attack on American forces in the Philippines was also crippling. Soon, American and Filipino forces were faced with a full-scale invasion by the Japanese. Jean would barely see her husband over the next weeks. Left to her own devices in the penthouse, with both Arthur and his nanny, a Cantonese woman the family affectionately called Chu, Jean tried to encourage people in Manila. Friends, both Filipino and American, besieged her with constant phone calls. No one knew what to expect next, but they all looked to Jean for some advice or direction. All the while, the penthouse was rattled by explosions as the Japanese began stepping up attacks on military installations around Manila. From the penthouse, she and Arthur even witnessed the bombing of the U.S. naval base at Cavite. She did her best to encourage those around her, but she was under no illusions about how dire their situation was. The golden gentle days in Manila were over. She and the general had both led full lives before they met, but now they were about to enter a decade that would largely define the rest of their lives and require great personal courage and sacrifice. Given their sense of duty and history, they were probably aware that this coming struggle would place them both in the annals of American military history, a record already generously populated with their much-admired ancestors. Part two will cover the second half of the Jean MacArthur story and can be downloaded via the memorial's website or on iTunes. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at (laughs) norfolk.gov.